Well, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Um, before we get started with the meat of the program, let me uh, just make a sh- shameless plug for the, uh, the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, every office on Capitol Hill should have received a copy of this already. If for some reason uh, you're a Hill staffer and you didn't get one or uh, one of your colleagues is hogging it, uh, just let me know and we'd be happy to get you another copy or as many copies as you need, really. The Handbook for Policymakers, I think, is an excellent, excellent resource to keep on your desk. It gives you an overview of virtually uh, all programs, all uh, policies that are dealt with here on Capitol Hill, uh, ranging from today's su- uh, subject of uh, transportation to Social Security to entitlements to foreign policy. You name it, it's in, it's in the, uh, the Handbook for Policymakers, and it actually includes a number of specific recommendations that are uh, great to look over as you're uh, dealing with the uh, issue du jour on Capitol Hill. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our, our first speaker t- for today. We're uh, very pleased to have with us Robert Poole. He is the Director of Transportation Studies at the Reason Foundation, uh, which is an excellent organization. He's actually also the founder of uh, the Reason Foundation. Uh, he has a, a really impressive background on, uh, on transportation policy. Uh, in fact, back in the late 80s, he authored a paper about uh, privately financed toll lanes uh, that inspired uh, California's experimentation with a number of, uh, of uh, private tollways, including the, uh, the 91 express lanes in Orange County. Uh, uh, Robert Poole, he also own, earns, uh, um, excuse me, he earned his uh, BS and MS in uh, mechanical engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and uh, he did his graduate work in operations research at NYU. With that, I'll turn things over to Bob Poole. It's not on the screen. It's only here. No, you have to press play. I did, but... uh, Oh, okay. There we go. All right. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here today. This is the year of uh, reauthorization of the entire Federal Surface Transportation Program. So uh, some big policy questions are going to be in play. And uh, uh, we've been thinking about this at Reason Foundation for more more than the past year. And what I'm going to present this afternoon is, is some of our thoughts on, on what, what, we might, what we would like to do and what we might realistically actually be able to do uh, in, uh, in this reauthorization. The first question that I think we should ask in, in looking at uh, not simply reauthorizing but perhaps authorizing the, the transportation program is what's the, what's the federal role? Why is the federal government involved in transportation? And if we, if we were starting with a clean sheet of paper, what would we define the federal government's unique role as opposed to state governments or local governments? And it seems to me very clearly that interstate and international commerce fostering, that's one of the reasons the United States was created. That's in the Constitution, in the Interstate Commerce Clause. So clearly uh, uh, facilitating the flow of commerce into and out of the states through ports, and uh, uh, among the states through highways and railroads is, is critically important, and, and the federal government has certainly a role to play in fostering that and making sure the states don't erect barriers to it and so forth. And so I can see the continued federal role, uh, at least in some form, with the interstate highway system, for example, and making sure that the ports seamlessly connect to both the railroad network and the highway network as a critically important federal role. Next thing that always comes up is urban transportation. And of course, the federal government does have a big funding and regulatory role 
in urban transportation today, but it seems to me any way I slice it, I can't see why that should be a federal government responsibility. Uh, I mean, these are, are problems of urban regions, uh, and the urban regions are all different. Uh, the, the transportation solutions that are appropriate to the New York City urban region very different, in fact, from what's appropriate to the Houston urban region and uh, or the Indianapolis urban region or the Fort Wayne urban region. Uh, so these, it, it seems to me that it's not at all, there's, the, it's a burden of proof is on anyone who says it's a federal responsibility to deal with urban transportation. Uh, and so I would say no, and I realize that that is, is perhaps an idealistic view, but uh, 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 it's hard to defend on, on first principles. Intercity passenger transport, uh, uh, I find that hard to justify as a federal role, despite the fact that the current administration has said it wants to uh, make uh, intercity high-speed rail a signature issue. I think that is a mistake on all sorts of grounds, but, but including uh, a federalism one. Uh, most of the routes where rail uh, uh, passenger rail transport has any possibility of making sense are among a few states where there are major urban areas a few hundred miles apart. Those would could easily be coordinated by bi-state or several state agreements. You don't need the federal government uh, uh, in that role. And again, the benefits of those sorts of things would be confined to corridors uh, uh, in, in one or a few states and, and not the whole country. Uh, so not at all clearly a federal role. The other three things on the list, safety, R&D, standard setting, uh, seem there's economies of scale there. They seem to be things that uh, uh, there's some advantages of, of the federal government doing, and I'm, I'm comfortable with those. Next, let's look at the problem that is really on the top of, of everybody's uh, list. Uh, there is a big funding shortfall, and, and uh, uh, I don't know, I don't think it, it doesn't really matter who slices and dices the numbers. Uh, uh, the United States as a nation, if you aggregate what local governments, state governments, federal governments are spending on surface transportation, in particular I would say the highway system, we are falling significantly short. Uh, the Finance Commission, Infrastructure Finance Commission, released its report a couple of weeks ago. My colleague Adrian Moore was a member, and uh, uh, they said that uh, uh, the capital investment is, is less than half of what's really needed both to properly maintain the asset value of what we have and to cope with the growth that uh, has been going on and will continue to go on over the next uh, uh, several decades. We've been grossly under-investing for both purposes, and we need to, to fix that. But it's not just, I mean, to think that this is only a problem of more dollars uh, completely misses the point because what we... What we're doing now is investing badly, uh, uh, and the federal role, as it's currently constituted, contributes to that. First of all, we still use basically the formula that was set up uh, uh, for federal highway funding to build the interstate system, and that was purposely to redistribute money that is generated in states with big population and fast growth and redistribute chunks of that to states with small populations and low growth. Well, I mean, okay apparently needed to do that to get the interstate system built. But the problem we have today is not building the interstate system. The problem we have today is uh, a, a highway system that is, is especially inadequate in places of high population and high growth. 
uh, and those tend to be the donor states, quote unquote, like Texas and Florida and Virginia, that are systematically being starved for funds because the mechanism takes money from the places where the need is the greatest and sends it to places like Alaska and Wyoming where the need is not great. Uh, so we have a, a messed up system in terms of coping with today's funding problems, even if you accept the premise that the federal government should be involved in all the things it's involved in. At the state level, you have a similar po a political dynamic at work that says every single member's district has to get its fair share of the money. So that means every year money gets spread all around very thinly, and the big ticket items that would really make a difference can hardly ever amass the amount of funding needed. So that's why we do pit, lots of piddly little projects, but we hardly ever do big projects. And it's big projects that would really make a difference. Also, finally, in all of these federal, federal and state systems, there's, you virtually never find systematic use of benefit cost analysis to decide what is a good investment. Certainly nothing as sophisticated as return on investment analysis. So you know we're spending lots of money but it's not at all clear that we're getting good value uh, for what we spend. So that's a, that's a big problem. And the other key point I want to, to bring to your attention is that how much of the total investment needed should be federal investment depends very critically on how you define the federal role. Uh, the current breakdown of funding, uh, uh, the interstates and the other federal highways, U.S. Highway this, U.S. Highway that, is about 45% of, of the current uh, uh, federal funding. The urban, urban roads and mass transit is another, uh, more than a third of the total. Uh, so you, you look at that, and if, if the urban problem is not really a federal role, I mean, right there, that's a huge chunk of the money. Uh, and in fact, if you said the interstates, uh, an interstate highway system per se is a federal role, but the other highways are really state highways, uh, you could chop a big chunk out of that 45%. So devolving some of those federal responsibilities uh, to the states could potentially cut the federal role in half, and that would allow the existing amount of money that's being collected from, from, the, uh, uh, from the gas tax uh, to go much farther on doing the things that really need to be done, let's say, for interstate goods movement and, and things like that. So there's really important questions in how you define the problem and who's responsible for what before you can say how much money the federal government or some other government should be spending. All right, now that said, I'm, I'm a realist. I live in the real world. I come to this town a lot. Uh, I, I think we're not going to drastically change the federal role as much as I would like to, uh, at least this time around. The Policy and Revenue Commission uh, that reported a year ago uh, claimed they were streamlining the federal role. They actually called for a large expansion of the things the federal government would be doing. And so their numbers you should take with a huge grain of salt because uh, uh, they were talking about a federal role that's way beyond what it currently does. On the other hand, the report that I think laid the best guidelines for a realistic reform is the uh, USDOT's report from last August called uh, uh, Refocus, Reform, Renew, which is still available, on, as far as I know, on the DOT website. Uh, and that called for rethinking what the federal role should be. Now, And it said... Uh, Federal interest highways, mostly the interstates, should be a really core program. They, as a, as a you know, concession to reality, said metro mobility, the, the urban regions, uh, should also be a priority. 
party, and, and okay, as a second best, I could accept that. Uh, and then they called for uh, another concession to reality, uh, consolidating a whole lot of other miscellaneous programs into, into basically a revenue-sharing program that would let each uh, urban region decide how much bike paths, how much this, how much that, but not spell it out in, in speci specific amounts from the federal government. And then a program of, of transportation on federal lands. Okay, if they own the lands, they've got to have transportation on them, safety and research and so forth. So that, I think, was a much more uh, uh, useful blueprint for reform than what the Policy and Revenue Commission did uh, uh, in January of last year, and I would commend that to your attention. Uh, all right, so how... How do we get increased investment? Uh, Transportation Secretary LaHood, uh, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal about a week and a half ago, said, we aren't going to have a gas tax increase. And uh, if, if that's his sense, uh, it doesn't need me piling on necessarily to say uh, that we shouldn't. Uh, I think reality is we're certainly not going to get a big gas tax increase if we get any at all at the federal level. Uh, the Finance Commission uh, a couple weeks ago uh, made a strong case for the gas tax being obsolete and that we should begin transitioning to a vehicle miles of travel fee, and I agree with that. But in terms of producing large chunks of revenue, you know, we're talking about several decades. That's not going to be an answer uh, in this year's reauthorization. Interesting thing that I would point to your attention, the third point there, is that there's a large amount of survey research and a, and a report from the Transportation Research Board uh, uh, came out last year documenting a decade's worth of survey work showing overwhelmingly that when you ask the, the public, would you rather have, uh, for better mobility, for, for more uh, transportation infrastructure, would you rather have a tax increase that was dedicated to that? or pay tolls to use specific new projects. By two to one, the public would prefer to pay tolls to use specific new projects. And I think the, the reason for that, uh, which was not specifically explored in this research, was that the only thing people know if they approve a tax increase for transportation is that they're going to pay more, whether in sales tax or fuel tax or whatever the tax is. They're not at all confident that they're going to get anything that, that improves their lives and their travel choices by supporting that tax increase. On the other hand, if they say, all right, I'm willing to pay tolls for new improved capacity, they can be fairly confident that they will only pay if something is built that serves their travel needs and if the service that it provides is worth the toll. So, hey, that's a no-brainer to choose that, and I think the public is finally woken up that, uh, that there are better ways to do things. The other thing that's really important to recognize is that over the last three years, infrastructure equity funds have amassed from, from institutional investors and private equity firms $180 billion in equity money, real hard money that's sitting in accounts looking for good infrastructure investments. Now, that's broad infrastructure. That includes electricity transmission lines. It includes uh, 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 pipelines. It includes bridges and highways and potentially rail projects, if there are some that actually would pencil out as commercial ventures. Uh, that money is – those funds are global. Many of them are based in the United States. A number are based in Europe. Some are based in Australia. But they'll look anywhere for good projects. And typically, these infrastructure projects that equity would be invested in, uh, uh, two years ago, they would be uh, between uh, 15 and 25 percent equity and the rest debt. Nowadays, in the current credit markets, uh, you're probably looking at between 30 and 40 percent uh, 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 
equity and the rest debt. So I, at a most conservative, if 60% of a project cost is going to be funded by debt and 40% has to be equity, that $180 billion would, would make possible $450 billion of projects or more if, if the percentage of equity would, could be lower. That's a huge amount. Now, that's not necessarily guaranteed to all be spent in the United States or on surface transportation, but it's available if good projects are proposed that, that would actually pencil out. And that is a factor that wasn't here when we did the last reauthorization. No such funds existed then except in Australia. So that's where we can get a lot of additional investment capital without any increase in fuel taxes. How do we make sure that money is spent wisely? Well, we could insist uh, uh, in, in rethinking the federal program that, uh, that projects would have to have a benefit-cost ratio of at least, say, 1.5. Uh, in New Zealand, by the way, it's 2.0 uh, in order to fund uh, new transport projects, but 1.5 would be a, a pretty good first start. Uh, the other thing that would give you that and more would be toll finance, because to raise the capital for a toll project you have to persuade investors that there's a, a reasonable return on investment, a commercial rate of return on investment. That's a huge filter that filters out projects that don't cut it. It filters out bridges to nowhere. It filters out uh, rural roads that uh, glorify a politician's dream but that don't really provide value in exchange for the amount that they cost. So uh, that tool is really powerful. And in particular, you combine that with public-private partnerships where they're set up to use the capital that is amassed in these infrastructure funds and match it with revenue bonds and, and or bank debt uh, and transfer the risk of cost overruns and late completion and even of not having enough revenue to the private sector investors who are willing to bear that risk in exchange for being able to make uh, uh, 12 and 14 percent uh, returns on their investment. And, of course, using congestion pricing uh, in every place where there's potential of congestion to uh, be able to manage your facility properly. These are powerful tools, uh, and they're all mentioned in the Reform, Refocus, Renew report, uh, and, and we really should be taking full advantage of them. So what could the federal government specifically do? Uh, in this reauthorization, there we could remove further barriers. The last three reauthorizations have all taken small steps to remove federal barriers to tolling and pricing. And uh, the last one, uh, Safety Lou, uh, made it easier to do public-private partnership projects uh, with full financing. But what, what else we could do is uh, to remove the federal barriers on, on tolling existing urban interstates and allow, which, is the, which the Finance Commission recommended uh, in its report, uh, allow those decisions to be made locally. Uh, uh, I think it's still going to be very hard to charge for existing uh, uh, infrastructure. They're going to have to make them into win-win deals for people. But uh, there's no reason for the federal government to stand there and say, no, you, you cannot do this. Uh, there should be a pilot program for uh, truck toll lanes on the interstate system that would uh, provide uh, uh, higher productivity, uh, uh, less uh, uh, emissions of, uh, of any kind of pollutants uh, per ton mile because you could use big heavy-duty truck rigs that uh, are not currently legal in most states. And uh, we enhance goods movement dramatically that way. 
uh, we should mainstream the existing pilot programs that are in federal law for uh, building new interstates and rebuilding existing interstates using toll finance because a lot of states can't afford to do the rebuilding that's going to be necessary in the next decade as these original interstates wear out and reach the end of their useful lives. And many of them need uh, expansion and lane additions and rebuilding of, of, of interchanges that, were, that are obsolete by today's design standards. And finally, uh, serious research and development on, on how we actually get from transition from gas taxes to the VMT charge uh, would be really important. And specific tools, that the two tools that Congress uh, has created already, uh, tax-exempt private activity bonds for PPP projects, uh, uh, that's a good start, and they're being used, but the, the, the program is going to run out of, of money. Uh, this, all it is is permission. It's permission to uh, uh, issue $15 billion worth uh, uh, in safety lieu. That's going to be used up in the next year. And so we need either to remove that cap altogether or to raise it significantly. TIFIA credit support program is also critically important with today's credit markets being in such a state. Uh, this is a very low-cost and low-risk program to the federal government, a very small amount of actual money. Uh, makes possible uh, uh, loans that uh, uh, make it easier to make these deals come together. This, I think, is a, a transition thing. Once we get more experience out there and once the credit markets are going to come back, uh, TIFIA will be much less critical. But this right now is a very critical thing. And the stimulus bill actually gave the Secretary of Transportation the authority to use some of the stimulus money to expand TIFIA program. We hope he takes advantage of it. And I think uh, the last thing is to is to avoid uh, serious federal regulation, which a few members of, of Congress on the House side have talked about, on state public-private partnerships. Uh, as the Finance Commission recommended, these roads that are called interstates and federal highways are actually owned and operated and maintained by state governments. The state governments that are doing PPPs are very cognizant of need, the need to protect the public interest, and by and large, they're doing a good job of it. Uh, the federal government could issue some reports on best practices, uh, drawing on global experience to make sure that knowledge is av available, provide toolkits and things like that. But I think the federal role should be very, very limited to protecting the, the integrity of the common design standards for the interstates and, and things like that interoperability of electronic toll system nationwide and, and that kind of thing and not get into the job that the states already are doing in, in making sure the public interest is protected in PPP projects. So to conclude, uh, we really should, in, the, in this reauthorization, reform and refocus the program, do a lot more emphasis on interstate goods movement and urban congestion reduction. Uh, we need to expand the role of tolling, especially since it's unlikely that there's going to be an increase in fuel taxes of any significant size. Uh, expand pricing as a powerful tool for congestion relief. And expand the use of public-private partnerships so that we can tap into this huge pool of, of capital that's ready, willing, and able to invest in good projects. And with that, I will look forward to your questions once we get to the question period. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Our uh, next speaker is Randall O'Toole, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He studies a number of issues, including urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. He's the uh, author of a number of books, uh, including Reforming the Forest Service, The Vanishing Automobile, and Other Urban Myths, and The Best Laid Plans, which was published by the Cato Institute last year. 
Uh, O'Toole was educated in forestry at Oregon State University and in economics at the University of Oregon. Randall? Thank you. One thing Bob didn't say is that he and I are both secretly real rail nuts. Uh, we love trains. We both have model railroads in our basement. We both spent many hours out on the field taking pictures of trains. They call it train spotting in, the, in England. And uh, I'm, I'm a bigger rail nut than he is because I spent many hours and many thousands of dollars helping to restore this steam locomotive, which is the second most powerful operating steam locomotive in the world, as far as I know. Lives in the city of Portland. So I do love trains. And despite my love of trains, I have to admit that the automobile, in particular Henry Ford's mass-produced automobile, uh, has been the most uh, uh, productive device invention for giving people mobility, giving the average person mobility uh, ever developed. And today I'd like to talk a little bit about that mobility, I'd like to talk about the debate between trains and highways, and conclude with some uh, uh, recommendations for policies for the uh, uh, transportation reauthorization. Now, a lot of us f fondly remember or f fondly think about, dream about, the days when you could take trains anywhere in the United States. When, when you got there, there was a streetcar line waiting for you to take you to your final destination. And yet, the truth is, as you can see from this chart, the heyday of streetcars and intercity passenger trains was 1920. The amount of mobility that that, this is per capita mobility, the amount of mobility that rail transportation provided was insignificant compared to the amount of mobility provided by the automobile today. Total amount of mobility was only a little more than 1,000 miles per capita per year uh, by rail transportation. Today, uh, we easily go over 15,000 miles per year by automobile. No country in the world, no matter how many hundreds of billions of dollars it spent on its rail, passenger rail network, no country in the world has been able to give its people even one-eighth of the mobility that Americans have through their automobiles and highway systems. Uh, Japan comes closest to, to one-eighth. Uh, Switzerland is about one-twelfth. Uh, France and a few other countries are about one-twentieth. Most countries are a lot less. And if you think about it, uh, it's probably not true that the average person in France travels 500 miles a year by train, which is about one ordinary round trip. What's more likely is that a few people ride the trains a lot, and a lot of people ride the trains very rarely. Uh, whereas in the United States, the main limit on driving is not cost for most people. The main limit is the amount of time that they are willing to spend in the automobile. So it's likely that the upper 20% in the United States do not drive a whole lot more than the lower 20%. The automobile has not only provided the greatest mobility, it's the most egalitarian form of transportation. And we've it enjoyed enormous benefits because of the automobile. This shows incomes, GDPs, measure, measured in different ways per capita. Notice the sharp rise uh, after the automobile became the dominant form of transportation. We know from studies that the automobile speeds up commuting 
And by speeding up commuting, it gives people access to more jobs, and that increases worker productivity and worker incomes. We've enjoyed these benefits at a fairly low cost, even though the average American travels three times as many miles today as they did in 1950, the cost of driving has remained about 9% of personal incomes, steadily. 9% of personal income since 1950. Gas prices go up, we cut back on some other automobile cost to make up for it. Uh, so we always spend about 9% of personal income, and that means we are able to drive more and more because the cost of driving as a percentage of our personal income is declining. Home ownership is, or excuse me, uh, automobility has given us access to greater home ownership. Home ownership increased from about 40% in the pre-auto era to almost 70% today. Uh, and that a large part of that increase is because the working class who once had to live in high-density tenements next to factories are now able to live in single-family homes the same as the middle class and upper classes used to be able to do. Automobility has given us access to a wide range of consumer products at low prices that were not available 100 years ago. In 1900, the average grocery store in America had about 200 different products on its shelves. Today, you're talking 50,000 products. The average is actually 30,000, but many of them are 50,000 or more. The automobile gives us access to recreation and social opportunities that we didn't have before. And a little-known fact, thanks to the automobile, farmers were able to retire more than 100 million acres of horse pasture and put it into more productive uses. We were victims of horse pasture sprawl in the pre-automobile era. And that, uh, the uh, dedication of that land to more productive uses, either forest or cropland, vastly outweighs the amount of urban sprawl that has happened because of the automobile. However, there is a dark side to the automobile, and that's what comes out of the tailpipe. I remember back in 1970 when I was growing up in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, you couldn't see Mount Hood from downtown on the few days that were sunny because of the air pollution. And I was hired by the Oregon Student Public Interest Research Group to develop a transportation plan for Portland that would solve this problem. And there were two modes of thought about how to solve the problem. One was to control pollution at the tailpipe, either through catalytic converters or by making automobiles run more efficiently. For example, with traffic signal synchronization, you can make automobiles run without it having to stop as much. And the other view was that we should get people out of their cars and onto buses and, and uh, under other forms of transit. And I was a firm believer in this second viewpoint. And my plan was to uh, enhance trans transit service in Portland and uh, uh, charge parking taxes so as to discourage people from driving and get people out of their cars. Well, I lost. The city of Portland said all we really need to do is put in traffic signal synchronization and that combined with uh, catalytic converters will take care of our air pollution problem. Well now, I have to admit, Randall O'Toole was wrong, the city of Portland was right in 1972. Uh, we can look at the numbers and show that even though we drive in total almost three times as many miles today as we did 30, 39 years ago, air pollution has drastically declined. This is carbon monoxide, but if I showed you nitrogen oxides or volatile organic compounds or lead or particulates, you would see similar declines. Meanwhile, my plan, the idea of getting people out of their cars and onto transit, 
even though we've spent literally hundreds of billions of dollars subsidizing transit since 1970, you can see transit has barely increased, whereas auto driving has shot way up so that transit's share of urban travel has declined from 4% in 1970 to 1.7% today. So uh, even though many cities did spend a lot on transit, it didn't work. Now, it turns out in 1979, a professor of, of economics at the University of California, Irvine, named Charles Lave, who passed away last year, uh, wrote a paper for the Atlantic Monthly saying uh, that this was, to, to him, utterly obvious that trying to get people out of their cars and on the transit was not going to work. It was not going to save energy. It was not going to reduce air pollution. And he said the basic reason was what he called the law of large proportions. The biggest components matter most. So look at this. Right now, 1% of all travel in the United States today is by transit, 0.1% is by Amtrak, and 85% is by automobile. Lave's point was, if we can make some incremental improvements in automobile, make it more energy efficient, make it less polluting, we're going to have a much bigger effect at a much lower cost than trying to beef up that 1.1% that's transit plus intercity rail. That's just not going to do much. Well, now we've got kind of a role reversal because I'm a firm believer in that point of view, and yet the city of Portland and Denver and many other cities are now saying their goal is to get people out of their cars, even if it means more congestion, even if it means they waste more fuel sitting in traffic and pollute more air sitting in traffic. Uh, their goal is to get people out of their cars because cars waste so much energy and they generate so much greenhouse gases. Well, we have to ask, but what powers the transit? That requires energy. That generates greenhouse gases, too. It turns out that since 1970, the uh, fuel economy of passenger cars has declined dramatically, whereas the fuel economy of transit has gotten worse, uh, especially bus transit, but also rail transit has gotten worse. And one of the reasons is because we're building these rail lines into remote suburban neighborhoods in cities like Houston and Dallas and Atlanta that are not dense enough to, to justify rail lines. To me, it's actually questionable that we have any cities in America that are dense enough to justify rail lines, uh, but certainly those cities aren't, aren't dense enough. And this pattern is going to continue in the future. Under the Energy Security Act of 2007, automobile efficiencies are going to decline. This is, combines light utility or light trucks, which is uh, SUVs and pickup trucks, with ordinary passenger cars. Future auto efficiencies are going to decline to about 2,600 BTUs per passenger mile by 2030 and uh, 2,200 BTU pa per passenger mile by 2060. So we're going to see this big decline. Meanwhile, transit, there's no reason to expect that transit is going to particularly decline at all. Uh, last year, this is actually 2006, transit used marginally less energy per passenger mile than automobiles. Very tiny amount less than automobiles, but automobiles are going to get a lot more efficient in the future. One of the reasons why automobiles are going to get efficient fast is because there's a rapid turnover of the automobile fleet. The average age of cars on the road today is about nine and a half years, which means the fleet completely turns over every 19 years. Jet aircraft, uh, uh, commercial aircraft, completely turn over every 21 years. 
But you look at the New York City subway system and New York City commuter trains, they completely turn over every 40 to 50 years, which means it takes a long time to implement new technology. So if you're looking at building a light rail line in a particular city or some other rail line in that city, you can't compare the energy efficiency of that rail line with the energy efficiency of today's automobiles. You have to compare it against automobiles 15, 20 years in the future because that's going to be the average auto efficiency over the lifetime of your rail line before you're going to be able to install more energy efficient transportation. Now, it's true that trains do use less energy than buses, but that doesn't mean that building rail lines will make a bus system more energy efficient because every rail system in America is supplemented by a feeder bus system. And here's the thing. If you can take a bus to work, get on the bus, and then it'll take you downtown, you go to work, you'll do that. But if you have to take a bus to the train station and get off, then take the train to work, you're more likely to drive to the train station. So the feeder buses run around empty. And so what happens is the overall energy efficiency of, the, of your transit system with buses and, and rail combined declines. This is Houston. They opened up a light rail system in 2001 and funneled lots and lots of buses into that rail system. Those buses, a lot of them ran empty, and so they ended up consuming more energy per passenger mile in 2006 than they did in 2001 before they started building their rail system and emitting more CO2 per passenger mile. Even if your rail line can save a little bit of energy, the construction cost in terms of energy cost and, and greenhouse gas emissions during construction is huge. Portland recently opened a light rail line and they predicted that the savings from operating that light rail line uh, it would take 170 years of, of savings to make up for the energy cost of constructing that light rail line. Now, many people said we need to build more rail lines so that when gas gets to be $5 a gallon, we'll all be able to take the train. But, uh, hey, gas was $5 a gallon last year, and uh, what happened? Well, you all heard the press reports about how transit ridership was up and people were driving less, but here are the numbers. We drove less, yes, but transit didn't make up for it. Why? Because the big box rail transit systems that cities have built do not provide an adequate substitute for driving. And so the increase in transit only made up for about 4% of the decline in driving. People had to find some other way of dealing with high gas prices other than using transit. So all that money we invested in transit was a waste. Now... The new thing is high-speed rail. France has built its high-speed rail lines. Japan has built its high-speed rail lines. Japan, of course, was the first. And the very first high-speed rail line in Japan was a success, makes money. Uh, and in fact, that uh, Tokyo to Osaka line has carried more high-speed rail passengers than every other high-speed rail line ever built to date, combined. Um, but what they don't tell you is when they opened up the high-speed rail line, the cost was so high they had to raise fares. And when they raised fares, notice in 1960, when they started building the high-speed rail line, less than 5% of travel in Japan was by the automobile. Then they raised fares and it pushed more people into driving. They opened up the second high-speed rail line, and that one about broke even, and then every rail line after that has been a huge loss. 
So they've had to raise fares to try to make up for it, and that just pushes more people into driving, and now driving is the dominant form of travel, and the average Japanese rides high-speed rail only 400 miles a year. The average French res resident of France rides it uh, less than 300 miles a year. Now, on a per capita basis, Japan has spent about as much on its high-speed rail system as we spent on our interstate highway system. The average American travels 4,000 miles a year on interstate highways and ships 2,000 ton miles of freight on interstate highways. And as I said, the average Japanese travels only 400 miles on the high-speed rail and ships nothing. It carries no freight. It's just passenger. Uh, no other country comes close to Japan or France. The next highest is uh, about 150 miles of per, cap of per capita travel per year. So high-speed rail is very expensive and yet provides nowhere near as much mobility as, uh, as uh, highways. And this is true in the, in Europe, throughout Europe as well as the United States. And in fact, people are surprised to learn that Americans drive for 85% of all their travel and those rail-happy Europeans drive for 79% of all their travel. And yes, they do travel by train a little more, but uh, uh, that's declining. It's been steadily declining at least since 1980 uh, when we first can get data for it, and they expect it to continue decline, to decline through the year 2030. <clears throat> now, when Obama says he wants to fund high-speed rail, the $8 billion that was in the stimulus bill and the $5 billion that's in his 2010 budget is not for bullet trains, 200-mile-per-hour electrically-powered bullet trains. It's for ordinary Amtrak trains going a little bit faster than they go today, up to 110 miles per hour. That's as fast as the Milwaukee Road Hiawatha went in 1939. So we're talking about 70-year-old technology, and it's not going to be powered by electricity. It's going to be powered by diesels. And because it's going to be running on freight tracks, they're going to have to use very heavy cars to provide people security in case of accidents, whereas the, the bullet trains are very lightweight because they don't share tracks with freight, so there's no danger of, of a serious accident. So uh, these very heavy cars are going to require a lot of energy to move at 110 miles per hour. Today... The average Amtrak train consumes about 2,600 BTUs per passenger mile. That's about 20% better than airlines. But airlines are projecting, and aircraft manufacturers are projecting that they can cut the BTUs per passenger mile in half in the next 15 years. And if Amtrak starts running ordinary trains at 110 miles an hour, its BTUs per passenger mile are going to go up, not down. Well, what about global warming? Is uh, high-speed rail or transit going to fix global warming? Is it going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Well, I don't think so. The McKinsey Company put out this report uh, in which they said that we could achieve serious global warming reductions or greenhouse gas reductions by 2030 at, if we spent less than $50 per ton on things that would reduce greenhouse gases. In other words, we have to spend our money efficiently. We can't go blowing our money on something that's going to cost $10,000 a ton. We have to spend it on things that cost less than $50 a ton. Now, traffic signal synchronization, coordination. You actually make money from that because you save the driver so much fuel that it pays for the cost of coordination. More fuel-efficient cars also pay for themselves. Biodiesel buses 
That costs about $200 per ton of greenhouse gases abated. Hybrid electric buses, more than $1,000. Rail transit, if you save any energy at all, the best case scenario is it's going to cost you about $5,000 a ton, probably a lot more, if you save any energy or reduce CO2 at all. So for every ton of CO2 you can reduce with rail transit, if you're lucky, you're foregoing hundreds and hundreds of tons that you could have done if you had invested that money in simple things like traffic signal synchronization, removing bottlenecks on highways, and other things that would relieve congestion. Well, the latest thing is that California passed a law requiring cities to build denser housing to uh, reduce global warming because they think that denser housing means people will ride transit more, which we know doesn't save energy or reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And they also think that denser housing is more energy efficient than uh, our traditional single-family homes. In fact, that's not true. According to the Department of Energy, the single-family home is the most efficient housing we have on a per-square-foot basis. If multifamily housing is more efficient, it's only because they have fewer square footage, fewer square feet. So that means we're telling people we want you to live not only in a place that doesn't have a yard, we want you to live in a smaller place than you have today, share walls with your neighbors so you can hear everything that's going on, and, uh, and that way we'll get you to ride transit more. This isn't going to save the earth anyway. Uh, doesn't sound like a great idea to me. Now, I haven't talked about one other major difference, and that's that our interstate highway system was paid for 100% out of user fees, and most of our highways are paid for, out of, most of our federal and state highways are paid for out, out of user fees. Uh, some local roads aren't, but uh, overall, 75 to 90% of the cost of building, operating, and maintaining roads is paid for out of user fees. By comparison, rail transit, all of the capital costs, and intercity rail, high-speed rail, all of the capital costs will come out of taxpayers' pockets and most of the operating costs as well. Uh, right now, only 25% of the operating plus capital cost together of, of, of urban transit is paid for out of user fees. Now, user fees are important because they're equitable. It means that the people who pay the cost are the ones who get the benefits. They're efficient because you know the benefits are greater than the cost because people are willing to pay that. That shows that it's efficient. But it also connects users with providers. It lets the uh, users know that it's more expensive to go on this road than that road or to take this form of transit than that form of transit and so they get to choose what's most convenient, what's most appropriate for them. And uh, it lets the providers know that hey there's a demand for going over here, there's less demand for over here so you should build capacity here instead of over here. So user fees make a lot more sense. Uh, if rail transit can be paid for out of user fees, if high-speed rail can be paid for out of user fees, then I have no objection. I'd love to see more high-speed trains uh, or low-speed trains or any speed trains. I love trains. But if they're paid for out of user fees. <clears throat> um, I don't have time to really justify all of these proposals, but I have three basic proposals I'd like to offer uh, that I think will make our transportation, federal transportation funding a lot more efficient. First of all, right now, after you take out the billions of dollars of earmarks, the remaining transportation funds are divided into a whole bunch of pots. You have the fixed guideway pot, you have the bus pot, you have the national highway system pot, you have the Appalachian Roads pot, all of these different pots. I say, forget the pots. Just give the funds to the states based on a simple formula. 
50% is based on user fees, 45% is based on population, 5% is based on land area. So that way bigger states that have low populations still get some money. That formula will, first of all, result in a distribution of funds. It's not very different from the current distribution of funds, but it will give states the incentive to start charging more user fees. And by user fee, I mean if, if they use a gas tax or a toll to pay for a road, that's a user fee. If they use a gas tax or a toll to pay for transit, that's not a user fee. If they use a transit fare to pay for a road, that's not a user fee, but if they use a transit fare to pay for transit, that's a user fee. Okay, so this will give states and local areas incentives to pay for transportation out of user fees, which, as I said, is fair, efficient, and connects users with providers. Second, when we have other social goals, like saving energy, reducing greenhouse gases, reducing toxic pollutants, require that the federal, federal funds be spent cost-efficiently in meeting those goals. That means you get the biggest bang for your buck. Now, as, as, as Bob mentioned, uh, very few states are doing this. I reviewed 70 metropolitan area transportation plans. Only one of them tried to, tried to estimate cost efficiency, and it turned out they had deliberately cooked the books to favor the analysis in favor of rail transit. When it was discovered that they had cooked the books, they said, well, it didn't matter. We were going to do that anyway. Uh, <clears throat> so to, in order to make sure that they actually do cost efficiency, create a citizen's enforcement process so that if the state of Oregon decides to spend all of its money on high-speed rail between Eugene and Portland, and I don't think that's cost-efficient, I can go to the Secretary of Transportation and say, here's the documentation, it's not cost-efficient, make them do it over again, and if the Secretary agrees, the state has to do it over again and prove that they're cost-efficient or do, write another plan that is cost-efficient. Now, what's this going to do? I think it's going to result in more things like traffic signal coordination. It's going to result in more small box transit instead of big box transit. It's going to result in more public-private partnerships. This is the SR91 uh, highway that uh, Bob inspired many years ago and uh, might in inspire more innovative highway systems. This is a highway in Tampa, Florida that was built at an extremely low cost above and in the median strip of an existing road. Now, all of these things are described in more detail in my book, Best Laid Plans, and in a recent series of policy analyses, which are available. And I also have a blog called The Anti-Planner. Just Google Anti-Planner, and I'm the first thing on the, on the list. Uh, I try to post to it every day. And I might mention there's a, we're having an annual conference in Bellevue, Washington, in about a month uh, that will be discussing these issues in more detail. Thank you very much.